This is the African Express podcast service. Brought to you from the Northwestern University Library's vocal booth. Coming to you every weekend from the banks of Lake Michigan in Chicago to the Manu River Basin in West Africa. This podcast is sponsored by Northwestern University's program of African Studies. This podcast is about accountability, gender equality, youth empowerment, climate change, and democracy. Welcome to the Africanist Press African History Series, featuring prominent voices of academics, poets, activists involved in shaping discussions about Africa and its past. Here, we introduce Marcus Garvey, a Jamaican political leader, publisher, journalist, entrepreneur, and orator who was a leading proponent of the African liberation movement. This episode is part two of a three-part documentary sequence created by the Institute of the Black World 21st Century, IBW21. The third will be released later this week. Part two focuses on the global expansion of UNIA and Negro World newspaper, which by the early 1920s had more than 11 million subscribers globally, a remarkable achievement at the time. This episode also highlights the UNIA International Convention held in 1919, which had over 27,000 attendees, and Garvey's conflict with the United States government. This African history series aims to feature voices, institutions, and individuals engaged in the story of Africa's past and present development. Here, we honor the work and contributions of Marcus Garvey. At the end of World War I, the war powers descended on Versailles to make peace and redivide colonial territories. From the seat of his self-styled empire in Harlem, Marcus Garvey argued that it was time to give Africa back to black people. Some said it was a ridiculous fantasy, but Garvey's slogan, Africa for the Africans, reverberated around the world as his movement spread through the colonies. In Europe, Garvey began to be seen as a threat. The United States had worked with the British government during World War I, and they continued that after World War I with a focus on Garvey. Because the British government was deathly afraid that the Garvey movement was going to spread revolution, they feared the hundreds of thousands of the masses of blacks under his influence. Undoubtedly, Garvey did stir up nationalism. I say this plainly and for everybody to hear. We are organizing to drive every pale face out of Africa. Do you know why? Because Africa is mine. Africa is the land of my fathers. We who make up this organization know no turning back. We have pledged ourselves even unto the last drop of our sacred blood that Africa must be free. Garvey's Negro World, now published in Spanish, French, and English, carried news of rebellion around the world. In Africa and the Caribbean, colonial authorities banned the newspaper. But with over 500 divisions of the UNIA in 22 countries, Garvey's message could not be stopped. The Negro World was to be smuggled into Kenya by seamen, black seamen, and then it would be read aloud to groups of people around this reader, plus 
young children, young boys in particular, who were charged with memorizing Garvey's editorial in the Negro world. So it would read out, and then these young boys would run off, having memorized it, run off to the villages and spread Garvey's word um, in that way. In the United States, black troops returned from World War I with high expectations for change. But they returned to a country that was not ready for equality, a country increasingly suspicious of radical political movements. In this unsettled climate, Garvey's appeal to disgruntled African Americans with military training sounded an alarm. Attorney General Palmer decided that there needed to be a special division of the Justice Department. He called it the General Intelligence Division. And he picked a young Justice Department attorney. He was really unknown at that time, but uh, must, have been, must have been known enough for his diligence. And his name was J. Edgar Hoover. Garvey really gets pinpointed. Hoover, the Justice Department, were, were clearly hooked on a fixation on Garvey, which would before long become a vendetta. J. Edgar Hoover wrote to a colleague, Garvey is a notorious Negro agitator, affectionately referred to by his own race as the Negro Moses. Hoover's agents were in the audience at Carnegie Hall when Garvey bragged that the UNIA would soon be strong enough to exact its own form of justice. When those crackers lynch a Negro below the Mason-Dixon line, since it is not safe to lynch a white man in any part of America, we shall press the button and lynch him in Africa. The agent reported that Garvey's address was met with great applause and much excitement. J. Edgar Hoover had long relied on casual informants, but now, in his determination to go after Garvey, Hoover hired the first full-time black agent in the Bureau's history. He was known by a code number. All his reports were signed uh, 800. That was his code. And his job was to go into Harlem and to infiltrate the Garvey movement to try and find evidence that could be used to build a legal case for ultimately getting rid of Garvey. Garvey rejected America. They could no more agree to and accept a, a militant rejection of America by blacks than they could accept a militant demand for full inclusion by blacks. Just as the government campaign against him escalated, Marcus Garvey unveiled a new business enterprise. It was his most ambitious venture, but would prove to be the most fateful. The idea comes to Garvey that black people need a shipping line. And he bases his idea on the fact that the Cunard family has the white star line and the Irish have the green star line. 
and he says, why shouldn't blacks have the black star line? So it is a vision of grandeur. Black people were routinely Jim Crowed on ocean-going liners. Black folk paying, say, for first-class accommodation often had to travel in third-class accommodation. Black people on ships had to eat after the white people had finished eating. So all of these problems Garvey was trying to address through a shipping corporation. His ships would carry more than passengers. Garvey envisioned commercial trade among black communities around the world with produce, raw materials, and manufactured goods transported on UNIA vessels. The Black Star Line was in some ways Garvey's Empire State Building. It was this monument to black commerce in the same way that the Empire State Building was this citadel of white capitalism. And it represented the ability of black people to seize the day and to have their own economy. Garvey offered Black Star Line stock for sale in 1919, promising his investors liberation and large profits as they slept. My parents spent a small fortune in Garvey shares. They were $5 a piece in those days, which was a lot of money. And my mother had to remind my father that uh, there was food and things to be bought because he was buying shares. And Daddy had those on his dresser. And I remember reaching out to touch them. And Daddy said, touch them and feel the power that the black man will someday know. Get on boat, country man. Get on boat, leave just months after his first stock offering, Garvey stunned the world with the purchase of the Black Star Line's first ship. Let our steamships sail the high seas. Not one, not two, but hundreds of them. The stronger we become upon land and sea, the more will be the respect shown to us and the greater will be the glory. The SS Yarmouth, a 33-year-old wartime coal boat that Garvey planned to rename the Frederick Douglass, would set sail with an all-black crew under the command of Joshua Coburn, a black captain. One bright November morning in 1919, Garveyites assembled on the pier at 135th Street in Harlem to witness the launching of the Yarmouth. A spectator said, we watched people jump up and down, throw up their hats and handkerchiefs, and cheer while the Yarmouth backed from the wharf and slowly glided down the North River. The ship appeared to embark on a spectacular ocean voyage, but because Garvey had not finished paying for it, the Yarmouth went only as far as the 23rd Street Pier. But when the Yarmouth finally made its maiden voyage, it was cause for an international celebration. The president of Cuba threw a banquet in honor of the crew, and members of his cabinet purchased chairs in the Black Star Line. In Costa Rica, workers descended on the docks to shower the Yarmouth with fruits and flowers. It was announced that one of the ships of the Black Star Line would be coming to Panama and going through the canal. 
was a very small boy at the time, and my brother and I were given packed lunches, sandwiches, and drinks, and were packed off to a place called Christchurch by the Sea, waiting to see this Garvey ship arrive. We got there at about 9, 10 in the morning, midday, no ship, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, no ship, but we were still there waiting. 9 o'clock, no ship. At about 9.30, 10, my brother put me on his back and we were on the way home. But the ship never actually came. There's no denying the fact that Garvey's Black Star Steamship Line was a wonderful symbol. It was a powerful symbol. But it was nothing more than that, I think, a symbol. The fact that people would come down to the docks waiting for these ships in some ways is metaphoric for the wishful thinking that was largely at the heart of the Garvey movement. Garvey was betrayed by the few people he trusted to get the Black Star Line afloat. The man he asked to inspect the Yarmouth turned out to be an informant for J. Edgar Hoover. And his hand-picked captain, Joshua Coburn, convinced Garvey to pay six times what the ship was worth and then took a kickback from the purchase price. Yet Garvey quickly raised and spent $200,000 on two more ships. And making a purchase of those liners without being led by experts. He was deceived about uh, the condition of those, of those ships and overpaid for, for their own, what their value should have been. It, it was a disaster for the movement and turned out to be a disaster for Mr. Garvey. At the end of 1919, Marcus Garvey married Amy Ashwood, the woman who just months earlier had thrown herself in the line of fire to save his life. They had a very rocky relationship, a lot of off again, on again, a lot of quarreling, and Finally, they married in a spectacular Liberty Hall marriage on Christmas Day. Their extravagant wedding was the talk of Harlem. Five different ministers performed the ceremony before 3,000 guests. Just four months later, the couple separated. Having a wife was an impediment to my work and peace of mind, Garvey would later say. I can't pay her personal attention as the average husband. In fact, I have no time to look after myself. My father was committed totally to the struggle. And that's why he, he, never seemed to, he, he never seemed to relax. He never seemed to take a day off. He was always committed to the struggle. He was always appeared to be dressed, ready to work. And he was working at home. He was working at the office. He kept tremendous hours. So it was a total commitment to the struggle and the cause. The UNIA was taking in thousands of dollars a day, but Garvey lived modestly on the sixth floor of a Harlem apartment building. He didn't drink or smoke, 
and preferred to eat the same food night after night. Garvey spent his few idle hours arranging and rearranging a collection of Egyptian vases and African ornaments, making his home into an orderly private world. Unless it was about UNIA business, Garvey rarely spoke to even his closest associates. I never saw him laugh. I never saw him laugh. At the office he was serious when we went to visit him there and at home. Well, he was very kind. He was very kind. He was always bringing things for us, as children. But I, ne I never saw him. He was always looked serious. On August 1st, 1920, Thousands of UNIA delegates from 25 countries assembled at Liberty Hall and Madison Square Garden. Garvey called it the International Convention of the Negro Peoples of the World. He hoped to move a step closer to his dream of a black nation in Africa, with himself at the helm. The whole convention is this extraordinary public event of pomp and, and ceremony and magnificence and grandiloquence, Garvey, he would now establish a stage, a world stage for his movement. And effectively what he gave the black world was a government in exile, a government in waiting. We have met in this historic building tonight for the purpose of enlightening the world, respecting the attitude of the new Negro. If you believe that the Negro should have a place in the sun. If you believe that Africa should be one vast empire controlled by the Negro, then arise and sing the national anthem of the Universal Negro Improvement Association. The month-long convention combined substance with overblown symbolism. Garvey installed officials with outlandish titles like Supreme Potentate, leader of the American Negroes, and lady commander of the Supreme Order of the Nile. After insisting that no African was qualified for the post, Garvey named himself Provisional President of Africa. But behind closed doors, convention delegates produced a groundbreaking document. They developed a program which was based on assessment of what was a black experience in 19, up to 1920, and how do we go forward, which led to the development of the Declaration of Rights of the Negro Peoples of the World. They were thinking there needed to be a black declaration of rights. This was an important document that called upon the nations of Europe and America to respect the rights of black people throughout the world. This was the moment at which Garvey, I think, was uh, both the most powerful in the sense of his articulation of ideas of justice along racial lines and at the same time his most grandiose and megalomaniacal because there was really nothing behind any of this. Garvey's reply to his critics was simple. I am accused of creating dukes, barons and knights, he said. But who gave the white man a monopoly on creating social order? Garvey's government in exile conducted its own foreign policy, 
appointing ambassadors and sending a telegram of support to the Irish Republican Army. He dispatched a team of engineers to Liberia to begin construction of a black homeland and chartered a delegation to the League of Nations to argue for the transfer of African colonies to UNIA rule. When he finally took to the stage, it was Garvey's moment of greatest triumph. 25,000 people, black people, pack Madison Square Garden, and Garvey delivers this magnificent speech in which he tells the Europeans to give Africa a wide berth because we are coming home. The day after Garvey's speech, a massive UNIA parade stretched through Harlem. If you didn't live in Harlem, you tried to find someone that lived in a front apartment where you could get in the window and view everything. Everybody seemed to be out there to see the Garvey Parade. To be a part of the Marcus Garvey movement, it made me feel that I owned one half of the world and I didn't own the other half because I didn't want it. One Irish woman observing the parade remarked, and to think, the Negro will get his liberty before the Irish. And of course we were looking for my father who would be in the group of officers marching proudly down the avenue with his sword at his side. It was an exciting thing to see. Marcus Garvey now stood at the head of the largest black movement in history. He claimed millions of followers around the world, but with the black star line hemorrhaging money and his black critics and the U.S. government on the attack, Garvey's fast-rising star would soon begin to fall. Not all African Americans were thrilled by the splendor of the Garvey movement. Many were embarrassed by the pompous spectacle of Garvey in cap and gown. A. Philip Randolph, who had introduced him to his first Harlem audience, said Garvey had succeeded in making the Negro the laughingstock of the world. W.B. Du Bois and A. Philip Randolph saw Garvey as a person who was engaged in a grand distraction. Garvey's emphasis on a program of African redemption, his pretensions to some kind of imperial posture as the provisional president of Africa, they thought of as either charlatanry or just pure buffoonery. Their complaints about him provide a legitimation for the government to move against Garvey. Because you can always say, you see his own people don't even want him. And if they don't want him, then there must be something wrong. Encouraged by growing black opposition, the US government stepped up surveillance of Garvey. Eight federal agencies were directed to report on his activities and J. Edgar Hoover resolved to deal with Garvey once and for all. 
They placed spies in the UNIA. They sabotaged Black Star Line. The engines sometimes of the ships were actually damaged by foreign matter being thrown into the fuel and so on. And there was every effort made to destroy the movement. However, that wasn't the only thing that actually destroyed Garvey. There were internal problems to the movement as well as these external forces. Garvey's own crews took the Black Star Line to the brink of disaster. One captain steered his vessel off course to visit his wife. Another had a nervous breakdown and tried to sink his own ship. Enraged at the chaos on board one ship, Garvey got into a fistfight with the captain and fired half the crew. But when it came to mismanagement, he had only himself to blame. Garvey looked for people who would be personally loyal to him. I think this is the only way we can explain the mismanagement and incompetence of the Black Star steamship line. The first treasurer of that line was a railroad clerk who had no experience in bookkeeping. What was important here, I think, was not an intellectual competence, but a loyalty to this charismatic leader. We'll take a short break and listen to Marcus Garvey by Burning Spear. Marcus Garvey words come to pass. Marcus Garvey words come to pass. Can't get no food to eat. As things spun out of control, Garvey confided in Herbert Boulin, the owner of the Barry and Ross Doll Company. To Garvey, Boulin was one of a few real friends. To J. Edgar Hoover, he was Agent P-138. He got closer to Garvey than anyone else uh, working for the government. And Garvey was really isolated. Things weren't going well with the organization. The Black Star Line was losing money. And so remarkably, he confesses to this informant that he'd tried suicide, that he was thinking of suicide again. 
it shows the loneliness Garvey must have had at the top. You know, he couldn't reveal those sorts of things to, to the key people around him. By 1921, the Black Star Line was on the verge of bankruptcy. But Garvey mailed brochures to his supporters, advertising stock in yet another ship. It would prove to be a major blunder. In the brochure is a picture of a ship which purports to have been the SS Phyllis Wheatley. It was a ship that Garvey was negotiating for and did not own. And it seems that someone etched into the bow of the ship the words, the SS Phyllis Wheatley. In other words, it was a misrepresentation. It gave the impression that Garvey and the Black Star Line owned this ship, when in fact there was no such ship. In January 1922, Garvey and three UNIA officers were arrested for federal mail fraud. The man Hoover once called a notorious Negro agitator was finally in his grasp. The mail fraud was the most convenient and ultimately the only uh, means that they could find to prosecute him. Uh, prosecution was not the end. Deportation was the government's real aim. In July 1922, while he was out on bail, Garvey made a move that would lead his black critics to question his sanity. He held a meeting with Edward Young Clark, the Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. Garvey felt that the Ku Klux Klan represented the invisible government of the United States. That's the real source of um, power in America, Garvey believed. And Garvey felt that as provisional president of Africa, he was entitled to meet with the counterpart of white American power. And so Garvey didn't feel that he had done anything wrong. In fact, Garvey thought that what he had done was a diplomatic stroke of genius. After he met with the Klan leaders and had them speak at his rallies, he was viewed as an enemy of black people. For a so-called responsible black spokesman to be having anything to do with these people was viewed as a complete and utter betrayal. This was too much. In a letter to the Attorney General, eight prominent black critics said the UNIA was composed of the most primitive and ignorant element, Negro sharks and Negro fanatics. They called for Garvey's deportation, but Garvey fought back. When W.E.B. Du Bois called him the most dangerous enemy of the Negro race, Garvey said Du Bois was a rabid mulatto who needed a horsewhipping. A. Philip Randolph, who had once befriended Garvey, called the UNIA leader a half-wit, low-grade moron. In the midst of that, A. Philip Randolph received a package in the mail, and thinking it was a bomb, he called the police. They opened it up, and they found that it was the severed human hand of a white man, signed with an, a note signed by the KKK, 
Randolph believed that it was really the Garvey movement that had sent it. Garvey, now frequently accompanied by eight bodyguards, denied involvement and said he was the target of violence. But then Reverend James Eason, once Garvey's hand-picked second-in-command, and now expected to be a key prosecution witness, was shot and killed. Before he died, Eason identified his assailants as Garveyites. As Garvey's trial began on May 18, 1923, a police bomb squad stood on alert and UNIA members packed the courtroom. On the first day of the trial, Garvey fired his attorney and announced that he would defend himself. I think Garvey believed that his powers of rhetoric and oratory would ultimately sway the court in his favor. He would have ruled the court, in other words, by his superior oratorical gifts. And I think Garvey came in the end to rue that decision because it was a disaster. Garvey paced up and down before the jury box as a parade of former UNIA officials took the stand to testify against him. Defiant, Garvey blamed subordinates and evaded responsibility for his errors. He also took a lot of time badgering witnesses, alienating, I think, in the process, a lot of jurors uh, by his courtroom manner. He seemed to be intimidating of witnesses, even his own witnesses. It was not a, not a good performance by Garvey. In his closing statement, Garvey's voice carried clear through the corridors and out to the street. I want no mercy, only justice, justice, justice. I would not betray my struggling race. If I did, I should be thrown into the nethermost parts of hell. After a four-week trial, his three co-defendants were acquitted, but Garvey was convicted and given the maximum sentence of five years in prison. Hoover's agents had the UNIA under surveillance for years in search of damaging evidence. But in the end, Garvey's conviction hung on using the mails to defraud one man, Benny Dancy, of $25. He took no advice. He did not heed advice. He felt that anything contrary to his view of things was an attempt to derail him or to deflect him from his goals. He had uh, just an overweening confidence in his own ability in areas where he had no expertise, such as in the case of ships, in the case of uh, trying a legal case, um, in his investment priorities. He, he just would not take advice. In February 1925, after nearly two years of appeals, Marcus Garvey was escorted to the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary as prisoner number 19359.
His only personal assets were $40 and a few hundred shares of his own worthless stock. UNIA members believed their leader had been railroaded. To dampen their frustration, Garvey wrote a song. Let no trouble worry you. Keep cool, keep cool. Don't get hot like some book book. Keep cool, keep cool. Garvey's personal secretary, Amy Jakes, had become his second wife in 1922. While he was in prison, she and Garvey's followers struggled to keep the movement alive and raised tens of thousands of dollars for Garvey's defense. There's one group in rural Louisiana that gave on average five cents. They actually gave eight dollars, but when you actually counted the number of people involved, it actually amounted to something like five cents each. And it actually showed the level of loyalty that ordinary, the little people had towards Garvey and the movement. People around the world began to send in petitions and letters and so on. There were literally millions, literally, millions of signatures that were appended to petitions that were taken to various government agencies in Washington, D.C. In South Africa, people would have Marcus Garvey's Sundays and pray for Garvey and so on. If they put you in a flame, though you should not bear the blame, but the government had its own reasons for wanting to release Garvey. Garvey had very weak lungs, and he also suffered from heart disease. He suffered from bronchitis and a series of asthma attacks, was often put in the prison hospital. They feared that he could die or become severely ill, and it would just add to the martyrdom aspect of the Garvey movement and increase his following. And there was an election year coming up in the U.S., and the Republican administration felt that black folk, who were largely Republicans in those days, might vote for the other party if Garvey was not released. On November 18, 1927, after serving two years and nine months, Garvey was pardoned by President Calvin Coolidge. But he was ordered immediately deported. He was put on board the SS Saramaca, a ship owned by United Fruit, the same company on whose Costa Rican plantation he had worked as a young man. It was announced that Garvey would sail back to Jamaica from the port of New Orleans. It was a Monday morning in November, a cold, drizzly, damp November, New Orleans morning. It was more like a Mardi Gras day in New Orleans on that particular day. Going out to see Marcus Garvey on his ship. I imagine the conductors got tired of asking for fares, so some people rode for nothing. And the fare was only seven cents. And they were just packed on top of each other on the streetcar going out to the riverfront. And everybody went out with their children, everybody just to get that glimpse of him as the ship would leave. And the people could stand on the levee and stand close to the river. And, uh, you know, they were for miles and miles about the people. Mr. Garvey was not allowed to land. He had to stay on board ship. 
He did not put his foot on land. And he spoke to the people, bidding them farewell and wishing them well and asking them to hold on, keep the fort. As the uh, ship was moving out from the docks, the people on shore was singing the President General's hymn. One God, our firm endeavor, one aim most glorious friend, one destiny forever. God bless our president. One we saw waving, we saw him do that with a handkerchief or something. But the people in general, they just was waving. Waving, 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 and crying and waving. Crying and waving. And the waves appear to have been in harmony with the song as the people were singing, and the boat was moving out to sea. They felt they was losing their father. Somebody so close to are losing themselves. What are we going to do? And my mother said until the day she died, she would not forget the sight of Garvey waving that white handkerchief as far as she could see the boat. Back in Jamaica, Garvey received a hero's welcome. He and Amy Jakes Garvey settled in Kingston and had two sons. He tried his hand at elective office, real estate, an amusement park, a collection agency, and a newspaper. But when an American court took title to his personal assets and all UNIA property from New York to Kingston, Garvey was forced to declare bankruptcy. Garvey was now a person who had come down in the world. And Garvey would be followed by children on the street and they would heckle him. And Garvey felt very humiliated by this. Garvey relocated to London in 1935. For a time, he had regular speaking engagements and managed to publish a newspaper. A handful of UNIA members, including Jacob Mills, migrated to Liberia on their own. But without Garvey's strong hand, his hundreds of thousands of followers in the United States dwindled to a small band of the faithful. The men folk, if they had your names and everything, and you are a member of the UNIA, you'd lose your job. So you had to meet in disguise. That was one of the reasons why the Garvey movement was so thorough in being broke up. You couldn't say, I'm a UNIA, UNIA member, I'm Marcus Garvey. You whispered it, Marcus Garvey. You could not speak his name. Garvey was alone in London. The asthma and heart disease that had plagued him in prison began to worsen. 
Garvey had a stroke in January of 1940, and he becomes incapacitated. George Padmore, who was a columnist for the Chicago Defender, had heard a rumor that Garvey had died, and instead of confirming this, he published a premature obituary. The obituary described Garvey as a man whose followers had deserted him, a man who died broke, alone, and unpopular. When Garvey reads it, he lets out a loud moan and he collapses. He suffers a second stroke. And next morning, he dies. The date was June 10th, 1940. Marcus Garvey died a forgotten man. But his vision of Africa would influence future generations of what he called the beloved and scattered millions of the Negro race. When Garvey's passionate ideas about black pride and independence finally took hold, he would be revered by many as a prophet and a saint. In death, I shall be a terror to the foes of Negro liberty. Look for me in the whirlwind or the song of the storm. Look for me all around you. In his 53 years, Marcus Garvey never set foot in Africa. I dreamed a dream that he came and I saw him. And he said to me, Barnes, do not be worried. For everything is working according to plan. I am not dead. I am only sleeping. The organization left the legacy of I am. Simply, I am. With no apology. I am. We had never had that up to that time. We belonged to churches where we sang, and, but Garvey made you stand tall and quiet, looking into the future. And that's a great legacy. And that was part two of the Marcus Garvey documentary. Part three tells of Garvey's legacy, intensified by figures like Earl and Louise Little and Amy Jakes, and re-echoed in leaders and groups like Malcolm X and the Black Panther Party. We will also learn more about J. Edgar Hoover and his counterinsurgency program against the black liberation movements in the United States. The Africanist Press Podcast is sponsored by the Northwestern Program of African Studies. You can listen to us for free on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music, Radio Public, iHeartRadio, Pocket Cast, and other podcast platforms. Help us reach more people by sharing the podcast, telling people about us, and stay tuned. <laughs>